I'm Josh Cooperman. This is Convo by Design, and today we are taking another little trip. Actually, it's a really long trip, uh, about as far away as you can get, really. We're going to Australia. Yep, down under. Here we go. Katarina Barakowska. A really interesting creative, one who says on her website that during 2023, when this was recorded, she will take on no more than six projects. And if you look at her work, you can, you can pretty much understand why. She has a simple and singular focus on luxury and what that entails in her design work. She defines luxury as a, quote, rich, richness, end quote, as it applies to the experience of living. If, if you're going to hear us talk about luxury, you want all sides of it, right? Quite a bit of what it means now, luxury has changed from boisterous, wide-open luxury, dripping, oozing luxury, quiet luxury. It's different, and it's how it's applied. And how it's applied in her projects is what we're going to be talking about and what her clients in the Americas, Asia and Australia, are asking of her. It's an interesting idea. What, is, what does luxury mean as it relates specifically to geographical standards? Does it change? Does the nature of, of luxury change where, you're, where, you're, where you live? How does the definition of luxury change? Why is it so important? We're going to talk about that and so much more. A few announcements before we get into it, really. Um, are you enjoying the new content we rolled out so far this year? I, I hope you are, like West Edge Wednesdays, uh, the Convo by Design Icon Registry, Drinking About Design, the Design Messengers. I, I, I hope you are. The editorial team wanted to provide a more diverse conversation to celebrate some of the icons who have appeared on the show in the past 11 years, to lean in on the changing nature of the design and architecture industry and collective communities. Not the business, per se, but the rapidly changing nature of things and how that affects the industry overall. I hope these new brand extensions are providing some inspiration. Make sure that you are subscribing to the show so you receive every episode the moment they're published. Thanks. I am so proud of my partnership with Thermosol. They have been presenting partners of Convo by Design for four plus years, and there is a certain amount of pride that comes with saying that the show is presented by the company that is the absolute best in the world at what they do. Thermosol engineers the most exceptional smart shower products and steam shower systems worldwide for a few reasons. They were the first company to design and patent the technology here in the U.S. dating back to 1958. Thermosol, a U.S.-based manufacturer in Round Rock, Texas, employs an engineering team that designs, tests, and continuously refines the product. Their quality control team tests every single steam generator before it departs the factory. Who else does that? Nobody. I have the pleasure of working with some world-class designers and architects who tell me, and you know this, that the idea of luxury has changed, especially when clients want a spa-like bathroom. Steam is mandatory. Or it's just not considered luxury. If you want to add steam, you have really one true option if you want the best, and that's Thermosol. Mitch Altman third-generation CEO of this family-owned company of 65 years, continues to innovate the bathroom and shower space through technological marvels such as intelligent showering systems, sound therapy, aromatherapy, chromotherapy, technical interfaces, and so much more. 
and now Thermosol, the industry leader in steam bath equipment and technology since 1958, is enhancing its already stellar family of products with the new indoor and outdoor luxury saunas. Available in three design configurations, each sauna is handcrafted from clear western red cedar or Nordic spruce, inspired by the brilliance of northern European sauna technology and design. Thermosol's latest collections offer luxurious features, and there's only one option if you want the finest experience, Thermosol. Check out Thermosol.com and at Thermosol. Are you subject. in Australia or are you in New York? You no, know, I'm in Australia and I'm in Western Australia, oh, so it's, yeah, 10 p.m. at the moment. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? You know, it's really interesting. Um, prior to the pandemic, uh, I was based in Southern California, and I would say that the you could count the number of virtual or recorded interviews that I had done on one hand. Everything was live. Everything was live. And yeah. so, um, you know, I would use Skype on, I think, two or three interviews, but that was really it. And then since the pandemic, it's been it's been almost entirely virtual, except for this year. This year has opened up quite a bit. How How have things opened up? for you? Are you traveling? Are you working more abroad? Uh, yes, I'm traveling and I'm able to um, get to my suppliers abroad as well, especially um, being so isolated in the west coast of Australia. There's not a lot accessible for us here. Um, so from a manufacturing point of view, especially from furniture supply, um, I am now able to get to anywhere and um, buy anything for my clients. So, and I'm also now flexible to go abroad and do projects as well. So pre-pandemic, I used to do a lot of work in Singapore in the neighboring countries, uh, quite a bit in um, Europe as well. And then for two, two and a half years, we didn't move. So we felt super isolated. Now, yeah, it's all opened up. We do a lot virtually, just like um, you are. But um, that one-on-one -on -one contact is more common now. So talk to me a little bit about that. As far as specification and access to materials, where you are in Australia, do you have access? You know, sustainable design is, is, a, is a major topic here in the States, and it's become where designers look locally for, for product resources, workrooms, that sort of thing. Do you have, do you have much access to materials locally or, or are you really specifying from abroad? Uh, mostly um, materials are specified locally. So even though they come from abroad or their origin is elsewhere, um, there's always representatives here. So when it comes to new construction or renovations, um, outside of furnishing and decorating, anything construction related, it's available to us here. Yes, but do you have locally sourced in in, in indigenous? You know, do you have do you have locally sourced product? Not that you're very waiting little. for. Yeah, really. very little. Yeah, most of that will have to come abroad. Is that a silly question, but is that a resource issue or is that a um, lack of manufacturing and tradesmen? Lack of manufacturing and tradesmen is the main issue. There is very little manufactured here. My, most of what we have is imported. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, so, lack of, and lack of labor as well, especially at the moment. So how do you, how do you manage in that environment? 
So we have found that post the pandemic projects do take longer to be completed. Materials take longer to arrive, but people are now accustomed to the new, new situation we have found ourselves in. So we do manage, but everything takes longer than expected. Um, and, and sometimes with great difficulty, it depends on what the product is and what the situation itself is. So everything we do is to time and budget, irrelevant of how big or small, everything has its capped off at a dollar value or at a time. So we find that um, sometimes given the fact that everything or most things come from abroad, it just takes longer to complete and you're not able to, or we are not in a position to firm up timeframes as accurately as we were pre-pandemic at the moment. So that begs the question, how do you discover new resources? Um, now that we're traveling again, are you going to shows? And if so, what shows are you going to? Yeah, we do go to trade shows. The most popular one for us is the Milan trade show. Uh, one just finished in April and there's another one, I believe, in October. Um, I'll be traveling to some uh, to the States this year as well. Uh, we do keep, um, we do have a, a current and close relationship with uh, individual suppliers and we keep ourselves up to date with what they've got coming up and we visit them specifically project specific um, but definitely um, the European trade shows and we'll be attending the design trade shows in Singapore this year as well. Have you been to that one before? I have been to that one pre-pandemic, um, really interesting, not as big as the one in Milan, but of course uh, different and catering to, to more of the um, local market. Um, and also these trade shows in Dubai that I haven't visited that I'm planning to visit this year um, and historically have attended trade shows um, in China like for seven years in a row pre-pandemic as well. When... You, you're a designer who, who lives in the luxury space. Um, yeah. how, has the, how has the definition of luxury changed over the last few years? A very interesting question. Um, so I, what I have noticed um, categorically, I was talking to someone about that this morning as well. Luxury used to be viewed more from a dollar value perspective, you know, what's it worth? The bigger, the better, the more expensive, the more luxury. I find that now that we were in a situation that we were forced to spend a lot, a lot of time at home, isolated, um, life has taken a different turn. We value um, things and um, from from a different perspective. The the more basic things matter more, and the freedom and the space and the comfort tends to add more to the value of luxury rather than the, um, the dollar value of, of the items that we buy. Specifically, you know, and, I, and I've looked at, yeah, yeah. Um, but specifically, and I've looked at some of your work, you know, I, I would, I would say where you are. Um, it's, it's interesting because my being from Southern California where indoor outdoor living is so important. It's it's critical to the to the experience. I mean, as growing up in LA, outdoor living was always part of home. It it just it, it was always part of that. It wasn't um, 
it, it wasn't something that came lately in my life. You know, back in the 1970s, you know, we spent more time outside than inside, I would say. And, and I think the same is, is true today. And it seems like you have a similar climate where you're based and you, you do a lot of indoor outdoor design. And I'm curious if, if that is a, if you're seeing that on the rise, if you're seeing new development in that general area more than you used to say pre-pandemic. Yeah, for us here, it's quite consistent. The climate definitely calls for that indoor-outdoor living, and it's um, uh, it's quite common in just about every residential project that we do. In fact, the, with the climate here in WA, we spend more time outdoors than we spend indoors, and all homes are specifically focused and designed in a way where the indoor talks to the outdoor and vice versa. So it's a very, very important element of the design. Very. Yeah. No, go ahead, please. Yeah, very important aspect of how the spaces are integrated, how they communicate to, to each other, and also big focus on being able to use the outdoor spaces all year round. So how do we accommodate heating in winter? We don't have very cold winters, but how do we make the spaces as comfortable as possible and as versatile as possible? Tell me, tell me the story. How did you wind up doing what you're doing? When did this start? So the love for interior design started very early on at a very young age, like when I started school. Um, <laughs> interesting, my father wanted me to be a dentist, so very different between a dentist and an interior designer. But um, I, how I landed into, um, how I, I guess I'm rooted into that cultural, uh, cultural heritage is that um, being... A foreigner in Australia, in a, living in a multicultural country, um, that fascinated me. You know how all these cultures can come together and live under the, um, you know, in the one country, unite, united and seamlessly. But also um, how I can relate to people that we have walked the same ground. So we came from somewhere else. We had to. Um, go through this cultural shift, go through that journey and adapt to a new lifestyle here. And then how do we not forget, not lose our culture in the process? You know, what do we bring to the forefront that relates to who we are, where we come from, that we don't forget that and how we pass that on to our future generations? So I've spent a lot of time analysing like what my parents went through, what I went through with that cultural shift. And then I could relate to most people here because most people are foreign. And then I developed a real passion for that, like really understanding and analyzing people, what excites them, what connects them to where they come from and how they go through that um, sifting process of what they identify with, what they want to preserve from their culture while they're here. Um, and you know, what we bring in from the past to the present and how we look forward to the future. So that's that's where my fascination is and that's where my love is for interior design. Like I really need to dig deep to understand people and then interpret who they are. So if I did your house, it's not about me putting my footprint in your home, but it's really understanding you and identifying you within your space. What are the requirements for, for an interior designer? To, to become a designer in Australia? Um, 
most interior designers um, have a formal qualification. So whether they have a uh, they have a tertiary qualification, whether that's at TAFE or at a college or at a university. And um, then to have the uh, a lot of a lot of us choose to work for someone else, or they uh, have done what I have done and, and um, explored the options of going out on their own. And um, there's a lot of successful interior designers that are also um, that have um, qualifications from abroad that work here as well. But generally, a qualification is required. There's a lot of interior decorators or self-taught designers that have. Um, you know, by default fallen into um, this profession, but there's obviously limitations as to how far they can go and advise. Well, and I want to ask about that. You know, it's it's funny, like you had mentioned when you when you told your parents that you wanted to go into interior design, they were, you know, less than less than thrilled, especially compared against, you know, compared to being a dentist. Yeah. I think in any of the creative arts, you have you have that that type of relationship, at least with most most parents. Most parents are not as as uh, understanding when their kids want to go into <laughs> the creative arts for for obvious reasons. Um, but it's it's interesting to me. So I, I have always I have always considered interior design as as an art form, y- uniquely yeah. uniquely an art form. I do I do believe in that. Um, yeah. Sometimes and as with as with many artists, musicians, actors, you know, in music, you'll have the absolute rock stars, you know, uh, a, a Jimi Hendrix, you know, for example, someone who, who, takes, who takes the art form to a completely different level, right? Most, you know, mostly in, in jazz or, or other blues or something like that, you have the opportunity to expand. Those are, so in the US, you know, looking at some rock star designers, you can sort of see how they've changed the game. In then on the other side of that, you have sort of the craftsmen who are not necessarily changing the game, but they're they're doing work in design that isn't necessarily groundbreaking or changing, but they're perfecting and recreating a feel, a style, an idea as it relates yeah. to the to the design. Which one are you? I think I'm the one that's always perfecting and creating. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't say groundbreaking, but I'm certainly uh, perfecting and creating because I really, um, really go deep into who my clients are and what really creates their most desired lifestyle. So my job is like to really perfect that. And, and you know, um, it, it's, quite, um, it's quite emotional when the clients say to me at the end, how do you know me better than I know myself? Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's quite yeah. fascinating. Like I look back and I go, okay, how did they do that? But I really spend the time perfecting, listening and perfecting along the way creating and perfecting parallel. Yeah. What, what styles are you, and it, it's a, it's a, it, it, to me, it's funny. It seems kind of like a silly question because I know, you know, here in the States, we, everything is by, by region, 
really, mm-hmm. you know, I, because I'm in Oklahoma, which is what I've, I've, I've often considered much of the Midwest in the US, like the design flyover states. So you've got LA, San Francisco, you know, you've got California and Washington. And then on yeah. the other side, you've got New York and Boston, you know, Massachusetts and, and Florida, which yeah. are really just designed forward. And then everything in the middle is kind of like, eh, we don't really pay attention to that. So it, it stays far more traditional. And then you have modern groundbreaking on the outside. <clears throat> what styles do you deal with? And do you have the same sort of situation where you have, you know, maybe a, maybe a Perth and a Melbourne and a Sydney that are, that are designed forward. And then you have everything else, which just kind of follows along. Do you have that? Or, or do you see styles emerging um, that are not just trendy, but gaining traction or have been popular for quite some time? Look, the coastal um, and Hampton styles are very popular. I mean, people love the the warmth of um, Hamptons and the coastal. We are all all major cities in Australia are along the coast, so it's quite consistent here. It's not as um, you know, it's not from one extreme to the other. However, myself design, uh, you know, uh, being a, a cultural uh, focused on cultural um, and heritage design, I tend to work with blend of styles. So I don't design for trends, I design for families. So it will be where you're situated, you want to blend in within the area, within what people are looking for from an exit strategy point of view. So you don't want to miss the mark on that. But you also uh, want to make sure that um, that the home reflects you. So um, I guess I've, very rarely I would have designed a, a, a home that's consistent in style. So typically my design work is blend of styles. But as far as um, what's on trend here, these um, these broad trends and um, you know like we definitely follow global trends but as far as what Australia offers in interior design it's quite consistent from one end to the other. I have become fascinated lately because what I've noticed is in this in this concept of a of a post-pandemic world we've we've gotten a lot smaller and because of that the exposure to architecture and popular styles from elsewhere you know in the last couple of years I, I keep I keep hearing more and more about the black and whites of Singapore you know and this idea of these colonial bungalows are not all that dissimilar from you know the the bungalows in the states or, or I'm sure the bungalows that, that you deal with yeah. Um, where where you are, it's just it's an interesting idea to me that that we're getting smaller, and because of that, architectural and design ideas and concepts are kind of blending more and more, which I think is is good for the industry. And I'm curious if if you see the same, or do you see more because you design elsewhere? Because you mentioned you do you do some work in Singapore, correct? Yeah, I've done quite a lot quite a lot in Singapore, and also. Um, it's quite interesting that a, a very popular style that I have worked on here is that Singapore Raffles, you know, black and white architecture. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it's very timeless. It's uh, viewed as a, as a luxury way of living. Um, definitely uh, very popular. So, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, that's that's what kind of what, what we see here, but abroad even more. So, um, yes, we are getting smaller and um, that crossover of styles is um, is very common. Talk to me about the what you see in 
so for example, kitchens. Yeah. Um, what does a luxury kitchen look like in Australia? What are the uh, must-haves? A luxury kitchen definitely must have um, a scullery, so a wet kitchen, dry kitchen. Um, definitely a good, uh, a lot of drawers, uh, beautiful natural bench tops, um, very well planned kitchen as well, but scullery is a must. That's definitely a definition of, uh, of a luxury kitchen where you've got both the prep area and the front area that's on show. What is it, what does your scullery look like? What is the what is the primary function? So that's where all the mess is made. So that's the back end kitchen where you do all the prep work, where it has like very practical functional spaces for all your appliances. Um, culturally, some people will uh, prefer to do all the cooking back end as well. So their ovens are in the scullery, um, their pantry storage, and their larger sink usually. That's where they do um, they wash up of all the fruits and veg, and that's so all all when they're entertaining. All the prep work is done at the back, and then the front kitchen is always a showpiece. Um, most commonly, it's storage and appliance area and just um, sink and um, not necessarily oven and, and a hot plate. Oven and hot plate remain at the front. Again, it just depends on how people um, prefer to do things culturally. But people, even though that some, some of our cultures do, um, do prefer to cook at the back and have a, a complete mess made uh, behind the scenes, they do take into account what does the local culture uh, require and what happens at a resale uh, time and, you know, what, what are the pluses and minuses when it comes to that exit strategy. So do you have, do you have cooking appliances in front, in a front kitchen or a show kitchen as well as in the working kitchen in the back? Quite, quite often. So quite you're often. doubling, doubling appliances. Doubling up, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting too because I I feel like you know tell me if if you disagree but I I feel like this idea of the modern kitchen has completely changed to the point where you know it used to be just one space and it was purely functional but now I would say for the last ten or fifteen years and again starting on the on the coasts and coming inland in the states yeah. this idea of a show kitchen with a with a scullery or a butler's pantry or you just have you have a pure working kitchen. Most you know most commonly with the with the Asian community here, where you'll have a working kitchen for you know for high temperatures and yeah. grease, um, and a lot of odors and a lot of you know like like very pungent you know so they keep it to a separate room that is actually closed off from the main kitchen. At the same at, so curious, do you see that at the same time you know in the Hasidic uh, for Hasidic Orthodox Jews? to have a kosher kitchen where you'll have larger space, but basically two of everything. Yeah. Um, and, and then you'll, you know, other cases where you have a butler's pantry, which is simply, you know, or, or coffee bars or wine bars, which are taking up more and more space. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, exactly the same. That's most common. I mean, it all started with the Asian culture. They introduced us to the wet kitchen, dry kitchen here, at least here in Australia, from what I have witnessed. And then it has expanded from there. I think now it's more of a fashion trend more than anything. Not everyone needs a double of every appliance. You know, it's quite, it's 
quite unnecessary. I mean, I just sold the house recently and I had like three ovens, two dishwashers. Realistically, I only used one of everything. But yeah, that's the exact trend that we're seeing here. Another idea, because we talk about indoor-outdoor living so yeah. much, is this idea of, of the, this concept of a, a full kitchen outdoors. kitchen, correct. Yeah. Everyone has one here. If you're renovating and you haven't had one in the house you've bought, you're adding one in. And if you're building, it's a not negotiable. Everyone's got one. We spend a lot of time outdoors here. So, uh, again, if I use my house as a, as a ex typical example, I had a full-blown alfresco with a pizza oven, barbecue, everything, and an additional oven just so that I can warm things up and not miss out on the action. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, is an, it is an overkill for sure. When, you, when you're specifying for that, when you're designing that, do you, do you generally get into outdoors as well? Like, will you do the outdoor kitchen? Sometimes um, there's this delineation of duties where you'll have a, an interior designer who focuses exclusively, like once they hit the patio, it's not them anymore. Now it's the landscape architect. Are you, do you do both? I do both. Yeah, you do. I don't, I don't do landscaping plants and not my softscapes are not my strength. Um, however, all the hardscapes I certainly specify, I actually collaborate with the landscape designers quite closely and make sure that we have a cohesive approach inside out. Um, back in the day when I first graduated from interior design and embarked on this journey, I'll never forget how I would finish a home, say, um, modern coastal, and then you end up with a Japanese garden or a Bali exterior and completely unrelated, so like no flow. So that was the time when I made the decision I have to get involved just to see the project all the way through and make sure that we get this seamless result. So yeah, I do get involved, and we certainly specify all the exterior finishes, not just um, not just um, in the alfresco kitchens, but all external finishes for construction. Backing up a second, talking about you know kitchens specifically, because I'm I'm interested yeah. what you what you're working with now as far as appliances. Uh, are you seeing a shift from a was gas ever was gas mostly popular? Are you seeing a shift from gas to induction? Yes, gas was mostly popular for a very long time, but I would say in the last five to 10 years, in, induction is definitely um, way ahead. Yeah, my, most popular. So in, induction is, is still relatively new in the States as far as adaptation. I think it's been here for a while, but, but, but most people yeah. still prefer gas. You know, we've been mm -hmm. trained about gas, like cooking with gas, you'll hear every chef in the world talk about, well, gas is the, is the gold standard because that's, but I've also heard it explained to me that if you're cooking with gas, you're, you're basically cooking against a flame as, a, as opposed to judging the food. And, and that, makes, that makes sense to me. It's been popular there for, for quite some time. So what has, is it because you have to, or is it because there's a, there's a buy-in towards the technology itself? I think people really appreciate the technology, uh, but I think mostly like what I, I tend to attend a lot of meetings or have in the past attended a lot of meetings with my um, uh, clients, navigate them to, through that selections process. And I find that what people um, are attracted to the most is the simplicity um, and also the uh, minimalism of the appliance as well. So it's it's very simple, very easy to clean. It's there, but it's not there. It blends or disappears in the bench. And 
um, that's, I think, far bigger attraction, especially for whoever I get, <laughs> cleans the kitchen in the household versus um, the cooking methodology. Do you, are you, so the, the idea of gas, is gas being phased, is, is gas being phased out? No, no, it's always available. And a lot of people actually, if they do a lot of um, uh, wok cooking as, uh, as well, they will have an appliance like um, a gas burner for wok cooking or, uh, or for frying in general. Um, a lot of people also choose to have combination where they will still add one burner next to the induction oven. So they do have combination of both. Yeah, again, it depends on what they're cooking. Like a lot of uh, um, Asian cultures will certainly require both because of their style of cooking. Uh, as far as the other appliances, the, the majority of the appliances that, that you specify, are they, how, how do you, what brands do you find yourself gravitating towards? And do you find that the appliance companies are, going in the direction of energy saving more and more, or is that something that's not really of, of concern to the, to, the, to the buying community as of now? No, I think product performance is a massive concern for the buying community. Of course, um, the energy and the consumption is very, very important, and people do pay particular attention to that as, um, you know, cost of living uh, goes up by the day at the moment, so that's very important. The, the most specified appliance... Um, uh, that I find myself, um, oh, the, I guess the the appliance that I specify the most myself is um, Miele. I really, um, I really like the the design, the the performance, the variety, the color choice as well. It's adaptable to different styles of kitchen, whether it's modern, whether it's classical. Um, you've got everything: uh, white, black, silver. Um, quite adaptable. Um, we for freestanding appliances, we tend to use Smeg and then Gagana as well. So they're probably the three most specified appliances here. But uh, I would say with what we do, Millet dominates. Um, and then as far as so we've covered cooking, as far as refrigeration goes, what are the must haves? Are you doing are you doing wine columns? Are you doing paneled? Are you doing drawers? A uh, predominantly master, uh, most specified fridge um, I find is the Millet Master Cool. Um, uh, we also do um, drawers, not so popular, but all in one. The bigger fridges, um, actually quite popular here in Australia is walk-in cool rooms as well. So I find myself doing a lot of them. Um, definitely integrated fridges. If it's a freestanding fridge, it's um the preference is that they're integrated, so they disappear. They're there, they serve a purpose, but they don't dominate. A walk-in cool room, what does that look like? So it's an oversized fridge. It's um, like a small pantry that you walk in, but it's temperature controlled. So it's built, it's built in. You can't take it away with you when you're, when you're living or selling the home, uh, but it gives you more flexibility on space. So like if you're big entertainers, you can store a lot of drinks, oversized cake for, cakes for birthday parties. And uh, for larger families, they work really well for families that bulk buy. Um, so you can consolidate your storage space all in one. They're not cheap to run. I mean, the motor runs 24-7. So from an energy efficiency point of view, they're not uh, a preferred solution. But a lot of people um, like them because you can dictate the size. You can build them as small as you like or as big as you like. 
I was going to ask you about the energy consumption. And okay, so first of all, are you specifying this? Is this from an from an industrial from a hospitality standpoint that you're you're applying to a residential space? Or is that a common thing? That that would be the first I've heard. You know, for using that in a residential space, I think it's an interesting idea. But what are the cost? constraints, you know, as far as, as far as running it. And then the item itself is, is that, you know, is that what you would generally find back of house at a restaurant as far as a walk-in refrigerator? It's, it's similar to a restaurant uh, cool room solution, I guess, more user-friendly and not as commercial looking. So you have an option of, you can have a see-through door that look, you know, it's just more inviting and more, more aesthetically pleasing uh, than what you would find in a restaurant. Um, the advantages are the space and being able to control how big it is, or like I said, or how small, so it meets your needs. Uh, from um, an energy consumption, um, it's an expensive, um, expensive fridge to run. Um, so the bigger it is, the bigger the motor, the more it, uh, the more it costs to run. Absolutely not. Uh, when when you have to meet energy efficiency needs and if you have to watch the um, running cost of the home, it's not something that you would just say yes to. Um, if you do your research properly and understand what it costs to run. Interesting. Are, are there any other differences that, that you that you deal with? And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of fishing here a little bit, to be honest with you, but I find, I find that fascinating. As far as cabinetry, um, I've seen some of your projects, which are kind of blended cabinetry where you're blending, you know, what, what looks to be, you know, prefabricated or fabricated with timber, um, as far as paneling and that sort of thing is, is that a, is that unique to, to your style or is that something that is general market? So timber is um, a very, very popular finish in all custom cabinetry. So all our appliances are custom, uh, sorry, all our cabinetry are custom made. Um, but timber is a very popular finish. And you will find that in a lot of our projects, you will see timber blend with a, blended with a solid colour. So that's also a very, uh, very popular look where you have two to three finishes. So one being your bench tops and then two, two colours, timber and a solid colour in combination. Um, that's probably most common and uh, what people are accustomed to. And then from there on, we're going to really identifying personal, personal needs and the way uh, people specifically and uniquely use their spaces. So, um, you know, what are their needs? Do they need upright platters? Do they need um, uh, two bins instead of, uh, sorry, upright platter storage? Do they need two bins or one? Like, what are their needs? How do they function within their space? And then we mold that um, specifically. But there isn't anything that's um, too different or too unique we would do because all, kit all custom kitchens are designed to the client's specific needs. Shifting to the bathroom because I feel like that is the other space. So outdoors, kitchens, bathrooms yeah. have, have taken on this transformational, I, you know, outside of that, you have workout rooms and I, I want to ask you about home offices and that sort of thing. But as far as the bathroom, how has the bathroom changed in luxury design for you and for your clients? Interesting. Um, nine out of 10 would have a freestanding bath. Typically, in the past, people will have a built-in bath or a corner spa, so they're not favourable at the moment at all. 
Um, definitely a freestanding bath, an oversized bath wherever possible, wherever the space allows to. Double um, basins instead of single. Definitely floating vanities are preferable versus built into the floor. Uh, lighting is also very important. So um, LED lighting, underbench lighting, um, overhead vanity storage as well, vanity built-in vanity cabinetry. So storage is accessible right in front of you. You know, people don't have to like crawl in, into the cabinets to get things out. So practicality is a must. People are busy. They don't want to spend a lot of time, you know, getting ready. They want to be in and out and everything accessible and easy to get to. Um, oversized showers, less glass, less cleaning. So as practical as possible. Um, I'm not sure what the trend is in the States, but hobless showers are definitely a big trend here. So what you is don't that? have a built-up built up hob to to walk a step over to get into mm. the shower. Yeah. It's like slight step down. So we call them hobless showers. So as minimalistic as easy as possible. Um, double um, shower roses in the shower. So where you have a rain, rain shower head as well as a handheld shower. So that, that's quite common as well in luxury showers, luxury so if, bathrooms overall. If you're, if you're going for less glass, what are you using in its place? Um, a dividing wall. I see. So, yeah. So instead, uh, a tiled, uh, dividing tiled wall instead of um, glass. So it's just easier to clean, easier to maintain. Uh, what, what about uh, steam and sauna? Um, popular steam room, individual steam rooms are more popular and sauna rooms. Actually, all my projects that I've got on the ground at the moment, they all have uh, custom steam rooms and, and custom saunas. They are uh, popular. People are very focused on their well-being and um, they're very busy. They don't necessarily have the time to go out and use facilities that are available to them. But if they can afford them, they'd like to have them in the comfort of their own homes. Um, so we do tend to do them quite a lot. What about um, the, the home office, the home gym? So I'm just curious for, for you, you know, what, what, was, what was lockdown like in Australia, when, how long did it last? When did it open? Do, are people returning to work or is home, is home work uh, a, a popular thing? Look, uh, working from home is very popular. We tend to do a lot of uh, custom uh, office spaces. Uh, we were very fortunate during the pandemic. We didn't feel um, the pain as much as the rest of the world did. So we were uh, homebound for a short period of time. I mean, myself personally, I was at home for less than two months. So I didn't really feel a lot of the pain. And um, I, I don't, I'm such a people's person and constantly visiting a new home every day. So I don't, I don't know how I would have survived for a long time uh, being, um, uh, you know, away from the office and away from people but in general uh, a lot of people have uh, got the freedom to work from home post-pandemic um, work providers are very very flexible um, so we we find that we have to redesign a lot of home spaces repurpose room into home offices so yes very popular to have a home gym very popular to have a home office um, 
more, more attention is paid to how they're designed and what are people's needs. So if you have to spend a lot of time in an office, you, you want to feel right. You want to be inspired. So where's the view? Have we captured the view if there is one? How does the space function? Does it meet all, all the requirements? And more than ever before post-pandemic, people are focused on customizing for their needs rather than just have a desk in a in an empty room and call it an office. So the focus has shifted. People are really understanding what their needs are. I've spent enough time at home. I know that A, B, C, and D are missing. Can we please accommodate for that now? You know, I want to feel better when I work from home. I want to feel inspired. I want to make sure that this and my office speaks my profession or it resonates with who I am as a person. So that, that is quite interesting for us. And I, home I, gyms, I, yes. You asked me about home gyms. So uh, people, again, um, spent a lot of time at home where they, uh, not necessarily in a lockdown, but people didn't feel safe going to a public uh, place such as a gym, you know, where you, get, you have to interact with a lot of other people. Um, so that these um, a lot of uh, spare spare rooms got repurposed to home gyms and um, people really focusing on on their well being and their exercise and keeping up with that as well. So we do get a lot of requests in all our all our common um, common requests for custom made homes. Definitely office and gym a priority at the moment. You know, it's interesting too. I've I'm I'm kind of putting a theory, <clears throat> putting a theory together that depending on the length that one was locked down, um, kind of determines their view of the performative function of their home. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. I know that but it, was it was very interesting that. Like never before, um, how much attention people pay to their homes. Yeah. Like we yeah. would even, we got a lot of repetitive clients during the pandemic and, oh, Kate, you know, you, like you guys did our home three years ago, but, you know, we were really busy, not really focused. We didn't ask for this. We didn't ask for that. But now that we've spent three months or six months at home, we have a list of 12 things that we would like to attack now. <laughs> so... I'm not sure how long you guys were um, at home for, but I'm sure you, that's what's happening there as well, yeah? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, so I lived in two places. So yeah. in Southern California, lockdown came early and it, it came hard. Um, I remember I had, an, I had a design event on Friday, the 13th of March, 2020. Yeah. Or the 12th, I think it was the 12th. No, it was the 13th, Friday the 13th. And then basically that was the day, like everything changed. Um, the next day, official you know, notification that lockdown, things are changing, masks were not a thing yet, but lockdown was, couldn't go to work. Um, a couple of weeks later, they closed the beaches. So I lived at the beach. Wow. And they, they actually, they closed the beaches, which was surreal and the weirdest thing ever. So you couldn't go on the beach. Um, wow. as a runner, you know, I, or, and a surfer, I would go down, people got arrested. They got pulled out of the water and arrested for, <laughs> for surfing because the beaches were closed and they, they defied the laws, but it was, it was an interesting time. But what it did was, you know, living in a beach bungalow 
and realizing that, you know, there's four of us living in 1200 square feet and we did everything outside. We would go other places for everything. It made, it made us realize, you know, and it lasted a long time. And then moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I, I, I don't think there was a, you know, nobody was wearing masks when we got here. Yeah. It was, it yeah. was far more open um, just a completely different vibe, but I feel like the the way people view the the performative nature of their homes now has a lot to do with the length, duration, and feel of what that lockdown looked for them, what looked like for them individually. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, everyone hopes in a different way being in a lockdown. You know, it was new to all of us. You know. You know, what do you compare it to? I don't think anyone has ever been in, in such a situation before. So I think, you know, as much as we all have the same needs, you're right, a lot of people, most people viewed it in a different way. So what's important to me may not be important to you. You know, like a lot of people found their environments very claustrophobic and not uh, being able to to live indoors for a long time. So physically you can't expand the space to feel better and to feel like you've got all this volume of space that you can move around in and feel comfortable uh, for a lengthy period of time. So they looked for ways of how do we declutter? How do we minimize? How do we feel like we have volume, um, physical volume of space when, um, sorry, not sure what happened then. Uh, how do we uh, gain visual volume of space when we can't change the physical volume of space? What, what are some of the other challenges that, that you have designing these days? You know, and I, I put it in context because, you know, not knowing what you have to deal with, but, you know, in Southern California, water is a major issue. Um, mm -hmm. Power is a major issue because of, you know, heat rising and temperatures. In, in Oklahoma, there are, there are different challenges, you know, getting material because of where we are in the country, getting product delivered has been, you know, somewhat of a challenge, which surprised me. What are some of the challenges that you have to deal with um, either locally or nationally as far as design goes? Yeah, the most common challenges at the moment that we are facing is shortage of labor and shortage of product. Not necessarily product not being available, but taking longer to arrive and also um, you know, like how much how much arrives it at a time, and then how long it's here for. So, it, they're the, they're the most common challenges: the uh, product and people. So, uh, basically, not being able to complete projects in um, the most typical timely manner that we are that we've been used to. That's the biggest challenge. And also, and also, cost increase, uh, labor cost increase is um, definitely a big thing. What's the what's the fix for that? Uh, look, it's stabilizing at the moment. I mean, uh, the fix for that is um, uh, the borders opening and being able to import labor for us here. Um, uh, also, um, it, it's not a quick fix. Like you can't train people overnight and um, and you know produce experts so quickly to to fill gaps in so we have no option but to import labor um also um i think stabilizing costs as well will uh, helps in in construction um a lot of uh, a lot of our labor force here has gone in the mining industry i mean there's a big opportunity for people there to um make uh, 
bigger money and quicker as well. So a lot of uh, a lot of people have shifted professions and have gone to explore other other opportunities. But for us um, here, the only way we can actually fix um, fix this problem, from what I'm seeing at the moment, is to import labour and to or not to overcommit and underdeliver. So a lot of uh, a lot of the suppliers or a lot of the trades, you know, just say yes, yes, yes to every project. They're overcommitted, but not delivering in a timely manner. So they're too thinly spread, and it's just creating a a, a problem left, right, and centre. You have a local design center. Uh, do you have a local design group? You know, ASID here in the U.S. Do you have a trade group that you belong to? Do you, what is the, what is the design community like? Look, there is a there is a design community. Um, uh, I mean, you know, like uh, the Australian design community that a lot of designers are members of. Um, there's the housing industry, um, HIA, the Housing Industry Association that I'm a member of because I tend to work on a lot of uh, construction related projects, not just decorating. So everything from the ground up selections and specifications for new construction and renovations. Um, so I'm only a member of the of the HIA. Um, but there is, um, you know, the Interior Design Association as well, national and local, that a lot of interior designers are members of as well. And then and as far as it... From, sorry, ahead. that's more from a networking point of view, you know, just to really understand who your competition is, what, do, you know, what are the latest trends, what are people working on, what, how they can support each other in, in, in problem-solving um, and you know, and, and sharing design ex ideas and experiences. It's great to be it, it's great to be part of if you have the time to attend. But if you're really busy, it's just um, really just becomes another another responsibility. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you have a uh, a local design center? Do you is there a a large trade only, you know, for the trade design center where you can go? Not like you have in the, in not as large as like you have in the States, but we, uh, we do have smaller designer centers here that, yes, that are accessible for people looking to uh, build the renovate or decorate and also accessible to all of us designers as well. Um, there's like, a, there's a place called the home base center. That's basically one-stop shop that, really showcases everything design product and design related so it's interesting so how do you you know this is i'm kind of coming full circle to where we started how yeah. do you discover new product how do you discover new new resources so we do we do have an extensive suppliers list and uh, and uh, established relationships with so every time they have a new product launch um, they um, come and visit us um, directly. Uh, we do um, tend to attend a lot of product knowledge um, uh, nights and, um, and, and launches direct with them as well. Um, we actively, um, in all us designers in my office, we actively uh, work with our suppliers where we have set up our own program and we would visit a supplier week where we do product knowledge and bring ourselves up to date, what's new, why it's, why it's relevant, the product itself, the product performance, what are choices. So we have to be always um, a step ahead of uh, 
of what's out there so that we can keep our clients informed, um, that we can keep every um, everything that we have in our library relevant and as forward as possible. So everything we do is solution-based. So we have to be a step ahead of, of multiple steps ahead of, our, of what our clients can get access to so that we can help them make informed decision and also understand not just the product, not the product performance itself, but also understand the cost and how that applies to the overall cost of construction. So we have to make sure at any given time that whatever we specify is relevant to their budget. You know, it's not just about being a creative designer and coming up with all these amazing ideas, but then when you have to bring it back to reality, it's unaffordable. So we have to, we at any given point, we have to make, uh, make sure that whatever we um, advise our clients to do, that we can back it up. So... So that being said, do you have um, do you have designer gatherings? Um, you know, small format where a, you know a, a showroom will do events for for groups of designers. Yeah. Do you have those kinds of resources? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's where the, the you know the product uh, activations happen, and that's where all the designers are invited, and and um, you know we'll learn about what's new, what's current, what's coming, what's what's going. So yeah, absolutely. And they're, and, so, and they're quite common, and that's the most common way that we do get informed. What's your when's your next trip to the states? Uh, hopefully in September. My next my next trip from here is to Europe in July, and that's uh, furniture shopping um, in Portugal. And then I've got um, a trip to. We're actually doing a, a personal trip for our 25th anniversary in September. And after September, hopefully we get to the States. Very nice. What's in Portugal? So Portugal, um, I'm going to a Cove house in Portugal. So they're a, a group of uh, companies that represent um, 12 different brands. And um, I'm doing a beautiful luxury home here on the coast and my client has been inspired by the furniture I've shown her. So we're going there to, to test comfort and to select finishes. That sounds like fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Kate, um, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. This was, this was fun. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Design Hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery-style space with a thoughtful display of products purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery. High-end faucets, luxury tile, natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available, stop by to find your inspiration, collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. Thank you, Katerina, for taking the time to speak with me. I, I love doing this, and this is why it's so rewarding for me to share these stories with you. Thank you to my partners and sponsors, Thermosol and Design Hardware, for your continued and unwavering support of the show and the design community. For more stories like these from the design community and some of your favorite designers, as well as designers you may never have heard of before, please make sure you are uh, subscribing to the show so you receive every podcast episode 
automatically when it's published. That way, you never miss an episode. Convo by Design is available everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. We're also available on Instagram for you to check out what's going on. Uh, Convo by Design with an X and at, uh, and sorry, Convo by Design at Outlook.com. Love the emails. Um, really do. Love the guest suggestions. Love the show ideas. They're fantastic. Keep them coming. Thanks for listening. Until next week, be well and take today first. Mm-hmm.